All right, so we are back together with our fifth church in our series, the church in Sardis. Last time we were together, uh, Pastor Stephen Webb covered the church in Thyatira, but we've been covering these seven churches. We've got another church next week. I'm going to be out. I'm going to be at Revival. Pastor Mark Kelly is going to be here, and he is going to be preaching to you all next week, so make sure that you are here. He's going to be covering the church in Philadelphia. But as we get into this text, I want you to think about the word reputation. Think about the word reputation. It's something that we spend a whole lot of time focused on for ourselves and sometimes for others as well. It's something that sometimes we can spend a a lot of time building, and yet it's something that can be destroyed in in an instant. And so as we think about reputation, I I want us to think about that that person that maybe you you can have in your mind that, that talks a big game, right? He likes to put out there that, that he's got a great reputation. And a lot of times, when does this happen? This happens in the realm of sports with men, doesn't it? Oh, you should have seen me back in my glory days, right? And it starts at a young age. I mean, you go to college and you find the guy that's still wearing his high school football letterman's jacket and you know, okay, that's that guy, right? But it can happen outside of that, too. It can happen even on our patio out here. You can talk to a guy and say, hey, hey you know what? We've got an intramural church softball league. Oh, well, I was quite the, the ball player back in college. I, you know, I bat 400 every season and hit 75 home runs every single time. Well, you should sign up for our intramural so- Well, you know, I, I pulled a muscle. I, I can't. It's not really good for me right now. I'm busy. I've got family obligations. I, I can't really be there right now. It's, it's that guy who's got this reputation that he claims, but that's not really his to claim. He's always got a reason why he can't demonstrate, why he can't show it. And so it causes us to what? It causes us to question that reputation to say, is that really true? When we come to the the church in Sardis, that's the problem that they had. See, they were boasting in a reputation that wasn't theirs to boast in. They were riding the coattails of a reputation that was formed in generations past by other believers that had gone before them in this church. And now this church was holding on to those vestiges of the past and saying, look at how great we are. The letters that John recorded from Jesus to the churches, if you remember, we're calling them the blueprints for the church as we await the second coming of Christ. And so as we look at these blueprints this morning, we're going to find that this letter speaks to making sure that our reputation matches our reality. That we're not living out a a reputation, that we're not claiming, boasting in a reputation that doesn't match the reality of who we really are. Well, as we've been looking at these seven churches, we've been looking at this particular region of the the world, which is Asia Minor at this time, modern-day Turkey, and this loop in the the top of the map there is where we've been particularly focused on. And if we zoom in there, we've been to number one, Ephesus, and Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira, and now we're right there in the middle of the map at number five in Sardis. What do we know about the city of Sardis? Sardis was a a unique city. It was founded in 1200 BC as part of the Lydian Empire under the reign of King Croesus. It actually became the the capital city. It became the capital city, and and the reason it became the capital city was because of its geographical location. It was situated up on the the top of this plateau, the top of this this hill with with 1,500-foot cliffs that dropped down all around the the city, the plateau there. And so they built this city, and they, they built... The, the fortress of this city, and there was only one way in and out of this city. That one way was through this narrow strip of land that led up to the city itself. And so from all outward appearances, this city was impregnable. It was easily defendable, and it was easily defendable. But the 
problem that faced this city was even though it was so easily defendable and it was so impregnable from the outside eye, it was conquered multiple times due to this false sense of security that had lulled the people into this, this slumber. They weren't at, at the ready at all times. They weren't defending. They weren't watching the walls because they figured, you know what? This wall has a 1,500-foot drop-off on the other side. Nobody in their right mind is going to attack us from this realm. Well, guess what happened? Starting with the Persians under Cyrus, Cyrus said, well, we're not dumb enough to go up that narrow strip of land and try to attack them head on. So what we're going to do is we're going to send people up one at a time to scale the 1,500-foot cliffs. And sure enough, as they did that, the the residents of Sardis, the, the people of the Lydian Empire, had no clue what was happening. In fact, they were asleep inside the city because they thought they were fine. They had this this reputation of being a city that was that was in, impregnable, that nobody could attack. But Cyrus sent his armies up one at a time, and sure enough, they gained access to the city and they conquered the city. Fast forward 400 years and you come to a man named Antiochus the Great, and guess what he did when he came to the city? Same thing. He sent his troops up one at a time, up the steep cliff sides, because nobody was keeping guard. And so this city, even though it looked so defensible, even though it was, was strategically located and became the capital city of this Lydian Empire and a strategic city in Persia as well, it, it fell prey to its, its enemies because it wasn't standing guard. It wasn't keeping watch over its vulnerabilities. What else do we know about this city? It was a leading purveyor of dyed wool products. This was one of their main sources of income and economy. And so on the trade routes that went around, they were busy with with trading in dyed wool goods. This was also the location that we believe to be the place where, where coinage was first invented. Gold and silver coins, it's held that they were first minted here in Sardis. And it was also uh, an area where the main goddess of the, the town was Sibeli or Artemis by other names. And then finally, ironically, there were hot springs nearby the city which were thought to be a source of healing, a source of, of life-giving uh, remedies for people who were sick or injured. And as we see Jesus' indictment against this church, that becomes even more uh, ironic for us as we continue on. Here's some images of Sardis. If you didn't get all those down, just email me. I'll shoot you a copy of the PowerPoint. But that's the gymnasium of Sardis, of ancient Sardis today, what it looks like. Here's a picture. It's hard to see with the dark image. I've got a better image on the next slide. But there's some of the cliffs that surrounded the city that they would have had to climb. Here you can see it more clearly. Up at the top of that ridge up there would have been where the fortress was. And you can see that narrow strip of land that was leading up to it. And you can see how from outside appearances, man, that, that city is a stronghold. Nobody's going to be able to attack that city and come out on top. But those, those sheer rock faces there, they sent people up those cliffs. And that's how they gained access because the city was not keeping watch. The army was not on guard. What about the church itself? Not a lot is known, much like the other churches that we've covered except for Ephesus. No mention in the book of Acts. No New Testament epistles were written, and it was most likely founded during Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, Again, like the other churches that we've encountered. And there's nothing specific mentioned to this church about persecution. And we'll cover why that is as we get into the text. But nothing specific mentioned regarding this church about any persecution. So the text starts off, the greeting, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, these greetings that Jesus has introduced himself by as he's written these letters have all been unique to the churches that he's been writing to. And they've all been part of his initial introduction in Revelation chapter 1. And now we come to this one, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. That's an interesting phrase. But it's a phrase that refers to the Holy Spirit. It's a phrase that refers to the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit, who re- releases, who, who dispatches the Holy Spirit is what he's saying there. And the seven spirits of God as a description of the Holy Spirit comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, there it says, And the Spirit of the Lord, so there's one, shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, two, understanding, three, the Spirit of counsel, four, and might, five. The spirit of knowledge, six, and the fear of the Lord, seven. He who holds the seven spirits of the Lord is believed, while we can't be 100% sure that this is an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, in the, the manifold ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus not only says he's the one who has the, the seven spirits, but also the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars were the seven messengers to these churches, the seven bishops or pastors of these churches. And so how is Jesus setting himself up in this letter? How is he introducing himself? He's putting himself forward as the one who has the authority over this church. You consider the the role of the Holy Spirit within the bride of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the one who equips the believers, who gives gifts to the believers that are in the church. And Jesus is saying he is the one who sends the Holy Spirit, who dispatches the Holy Spirit. And he's also saying he's the one who has the authority over the church's messengers, all seven of them. He's the one with the authority over the pastor, over the bishop, of these churches. And so he's writing this letter, and as he's writing it, he's, number one, establishing the fact that he has sovereign authority over the church. From there, he gets into the the text itself, and he starts off in a little bit of a, a strange way for us, because we're used to him starting off these letters by saying, hey, you know what, here's what you're doing well. But he doesn't do that with the church in Sardis. He starts off this, and he says this, I know your works, second half of verse one. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Again, this is outside the normal pattern that Jesus does. He doesn't start with a condemnation, with a word of encouragement. He goes straight for the gullet here. He goes straight for the jugular here. He says, you've got a major, massive problem. And why does he do that? He does that because the spiritual vitality of this church, this church's existence, the the eternal destiny of those within the church was at stake and in peril. And so he addresses them right off the bat with what's wrong with the church. And he says, I know your works. Hopefully at this point, that's a phrase that's starting to sound familiar. It's included in five of the seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches. And that word works there means the, the moral behavior, deeds, activities of those in the church. I know how you live your life. I know what you profess, but I know what your actual moral behavior looks like. In John chapter 3, verse 20, John there says that, you know, those who are, are evil don't want to come to the light. Why? Lest their, their works be exposed. It's the same concept. It's the same word. It's their evil deeds, their sins be brought to light. So they avoid coming to the light. But Jesus says to this church, you have the reputation of being alive. They had this this name is what the word reputation means there. You have a name of being those who are alive. Everybody else looks at you from the outside 
Just like the people would have looked at the city of Sardis and said, man, that city is strong, it's doing well. Everybody looked at this church and said, this church is vibrant. It's a, a church that's, that's full of, of, of strong believers. The problem is that word name, which is translated reputation in our text, comes from a Greek word that had a negative connotation. It, it comes from a Greek word that, that kind of meant, hey, you've put out this, this facade it meant, you know, externally, this is how you appear, but inwardly, there, there's a difference. It was a nominal reputation that they had. Some of you know that I'm a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, who are known affectionately as America's team. You were going to say something else, but I beat you to it. They're known as America's team, right? They are, even still today, and it's absurd, and I'm saying that as a, as a fan of the team, because their last Super Bowl was in the 90s under Aikman and and you had Emmett Smith and Michael Irvin and Daryl Moose Johnson. Those were the glory days of the Cowboys. Today's Cowboys are living on that reputation. And so they're going around and, and Jerry Jones is selling t-shirts that say America's team and you've got the star on it and he's building the, the alien spaceship Jerry World Stadium out there and spending billions of dollars in his, on his franchise all the while peddling them as something that they're not. They're not a winning football team anymore. They're not a dominant football team anymore. They're certainly not a dynasty anymore. But that's what Jerry Jones wants us to believe. And what's he building that off of? He's building that off of a, a reputation that may have been true decades ago, but now is not true at all. That's what was going on with this church. Their reputation of being a church that was vibrant and, and alive and healthy may have been true when it was first founded by the Apostle Paul. It may have been true in the early stages of this church, in its infancy. But now, a couple of generations later, this church is no longer that same church. And the reputation that they're claiming, the reputation that they're boasting in, that, that they're convincing everybody else that, that is true of them, is not theirs to boast in. It'd be like Dak, Dak Prescott going out and, and borrowing Troy Eggman's Super Bowl rings and being like, look at us, look how many Super Bowl rings we've got. It's absurd, it's ridiculous, and, and that's the thing. They had fooled the outside world, but Jesus saw the truth. He said, you have a reputation, you have an, an external name, you have a nominal name that you're healthy, that you're vibrant, that you're doing well. But Jesus says, I know the reality, and the reality is that you are dead. What does that mean, that they're dead? Well, it's possible that this was a physically dying church. That because of, of their lack of evangelistic zeal and passion for Christ, that they weren't adding new members to the church, and this, this church was growing older, and as they were growing older, their numbers were dwindling. It's, it's possible that this church was physically dying, but what Jesus really was driving at and, and indicting them about was their inward reality. That they were spiritually dead. That they were living on the coattails of a former spiritual vitality. That they had been lulled into a state of spiritual slumber. I mentioned that this church has no reference to any sort of persecution. The churches that we've looked at previously have had either false teachers in them that Jesus was saying, hey, you guys are being faithful even in the face of a false teacher here. You remember the, the one reference to the man named Antipas who was killed for his, his belief in Jesus and yet Jesus still commended people for holding fast in the face of persecution. Why don't we find persecution in the, faith, in the, the church in Sardis? I think that the... the best understanding in the, in the most likely scenario is that this church had caved to the world around them. 
that they had blended into the world around them, that, that there was nobody really there who was willing to, to take a stand and say, no, we're going to be distinct. We're going to be unique. We're going to hold fast to the doctrines and realities of, of God in order to draw persecution. You know, the, the world around them looked at them and thought they, that they were great. That's a problem for the church. We are in the world, but not of the world. There should be a distinction there. The world around us should look at us, and we should draw the persecution from the world. Jesus said so in John 17. If they hated me, they will what? Hate you. And so this church was, was a fraud. Outwardly, they looked great, but inwardly, they were dead. John MacArthur compared this church to a display at a natural history museum. You walk in, you see it. It looks like a scene right out of nature, doesn't it? You see the trees, you see the mountains, you see the river, you see everything, and it looks so real, so pristine. And you even see the, the animals that would naturally be found in that environment. But what's the problem with the animals? They're stuffed. They're dead. There's no life there. That's what this church in Sardis was like. And so it's this indictment. He continues on with the indictment. You have to, to skip down for just a minute there. He says this. He says in verse 2, he says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What works you do have may be enough to fool the world around you, but Jesus is saying they're not enough in the eyes of God. You guys remember Daniel chapter 5, the king named Belshazzar? You remember he's throwing this, this massive party, this feast, and a hand shows up on the, and starts writing on the wall and nobody's able to interpret the writing on the wall. And they finally call in Daniel. And Daniel looks at the writing and he says, it says many, many tekel ufarsin. And I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but neither do you. So we're going to go with it. But he says, he says, this is what it means. He says, you've been weighed. You've been measured. You've been weighed. And what? You've been found wanting. That's what's going on with Sardis. Jesus shows up on the scene. He goes, you've been measured in the scales that matter. You've been weighed. And you've been found lacking. It's a danger for us as well. It's point number one this morning. We need to remember the reputation that matters. Remember the reputation that matters. Having a great spiritual reputation from, from either within the church or outside the church, that's not a bad thing as long as it's rooted to a genuine relationship with Christ. Do we want the, the world to think well of the church? Yeah, we do. We work hard to make sure that our neighbors inside this loop think highly of our church, that we have a good reputation with them. You should want to have a, a good reputation as a person with your neighbors. You should treat them with kindness and with respect and with compassion. But don't put all your, your weight there. Don't put all your weight there and, and think that just because the world thinks that you're a great guy, that you're doing all right for yourself. Make sure that you're attending to the reputation that really matters. Think about Barry Bonds. During that, that time when he was just swatting home runs every other pitch. The time when they were intentionally walking him with the bases loaded instead of pitching to him. The time that everybody was just blown away, amazed at Barry Bonds. He had this reputation, didn't he, of being an incredible power hitter. Don't come up to me afterwards. I get it. It's hard to hit a fastball. He was a, an amazing athlete. I, I get that. But... How did his reputation change when it came out that he was using steroids? 
changed a lot, didn't he? We whipped out that little asterisk and we put it by his whole career. But think about the contrast between the reputation he had with his fans before the steroid allegations came out and the reputation he had with his trainer who was administering the steroids. Those are two different reputations, aren't they? His trainer knows the real story. God knows the real story for us. So you may have a a great reputation within the church. You may have a great reputation with the men around this table. But God knows what's real. And so make sure that your reputation with God is first and foremost. And that that's anchored in a relationship with Christ. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For what one sows, that will he also reap. That will he also reap. God is not mocked. He's not fooled. So don't concern yourself first with the reputation of the world or the reputation with other believers. Concern yourself first with the reputation of the one who knows the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Don't be lulled into a state of of spiritual apathy or slumber just because so-and-so thinks that you're a great Christian. Stay on guard. Be on the offensive. Be proactive in always striving to please God. Philippians chapter 3, if you were with us on the camp out, you heard me preach on this passage. But Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes there, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind... And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind. How many of you have read that text and thought that we need to to forget our failures and our sins, and, and once we've sought forgiveness from the Lord, we can press on in obedience to him because his mercies are new every morning. So we forget what lies behind. How many of you guys have, have thought that? Okay, me too. I, I used to think that. That's not what he's talking about. Think about the context of Philippians chapter 3. What has Paul just been talking about before this? He's been talking about everything that he can boast in, right? His earthly resume. His, in fact, not just his earthly resume, his spiritual resume. He's saying, look, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. In fact, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. As to, the, to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the, of the church. I was a persecutor of the church. As to the law, blameless. Some of these things are, are, are good things. Not persecuting the church, but obeying God's law, that, that's a good thing. But what does Paul say about all that? He says it's, it's dung. It's worthless. And then he goes to this and he says, I'm going to forget what lies behind and press on towards what lies ahead. What is, what he's, what is the, the stuff that lies behind? It's not the bad things. It's not his sins. It's everything that he can boast in. It's his spiritual accomplishments. It's all the things when we say, man, I had a great week of, of time in the in daily Bible reading. I had a great week of time praying with my wife. Great week of time encouraging other brothers in Christ. Good, forget it, and press on. Why? Otherwise, we're going to be tempted to to live there. We're going to be tempted to live in in our past accomplishments, in our past victories. We're going to be tempted to live in in that reputation of being a a godly man instead of seeing that, that we always need to strive for a reputation with God that is the reputation that really matters. Don't ever be satisfied with someone else being impressed with you on this side of eternity. Because that opinion means nothing. Strive, press on towards the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
labor to keep a good name, a good reputation with the Lord. Make sure you're not trusting anything external for your standing with God. He goes on from here after saying, look, I know your reputation. You you, you have this reputation that you're living, but you're dead. He says, now the, the correction, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it. This slumbering church in Sardis literally needed a wake-up call, and that's what Jesus gave them. And this isn't like that, you know, the, that alarm clock that starts to, to slowly glow and play like Enya in the background to wake you up gently. That's not what this is, Okay. This is that time to get up and get into action. This is the the kid coming into your room in the middle of the night, already throwing up, saying, Daddy, I don't feel good. You're out of bed as fast as you possibly can looking for a bucket, right? That's the type of wake-up call. It's jarring. It's shocking. It's it's stand at attention. That's what the call is. It's be alert. It's the same word used in in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? For your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone he may devour. Be on guard. Man the watchtowers. Think of the history of Sardis and how the residents of this church would have been thinking about these these words from Jesus. Wake up! They would have remembered that their city was asleep, not just once but twice, and was taken captive as a result. Wake up, stand at the ready, be alert. Have every watchtower of your spiritual life manned. But there's more. He says, wake up. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Not all was lost as this command reveals. There was still hope for this church. There were vestiges of their strong past that still remained. There were still faithful, genuine saints that were there among the congregation. And Jesus was going to them and saying, strengthen what remains. They were to take the dying embers of the fire that had once been blazing so brightly in this church and they were to blow new life back into those embers. They were to fan the flame of those embers. They were to strengthen what remained. These faithful needed to take the the doctrines and realities of the gospel that had long been forgotten in this church and bring them back to the forefront. See them restored to their rightful position. They need to sound the alarm. They needed to call people back to genuine salvation and sanctification in Christ. How are they to do that? He gives them a prescription. He says, call them by saying, remember Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember what? What you received and heard. What was that? It was the gospel. It was the teaching of the apostles. It was the letters of Paul. Remember these things. Call them to mind. This is the same instruction that was given to the church in Ephesus when he said, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Jesus is calling them to remember the foundations that once were so important and so vital to this church. It's the perfect tense that he uses there when he says, remember what you have received. The perfect tense means that it was a a past action that had ongoing, continuing results. 
And so he's saying, remember what you received in the past that now should be having ongoing results within the church. Remember what you have received and heard. And he says what? Keep these things. What does it mean to keep it? It means to persist in obeying. Obeying the truth. Obeying the commandments of God. Obeying the things that you have heard. This was a favorite word of Jesus' to refer to obedience. John 8, 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. What does it mean to keep the word of Jesus? Does it mean to go home and take your Bible all pristine and put it under a glass case and keep it and preserve it so that nothing happens to it? No. John 14, 23, if you love me, you will keep my word. There's the same word keep again. John builds on the same idea in 1 John when he says, we will know we love God if we what? Keep his commandments. The word keep means to obey. The problem with this church was not that they needed a, a knowledge. They had access to the knowledge. Remember the things that you have heard and received. Go back to these teachings, but don't just go back to these teachings. Complete repentance by actually living them out. Keep them. Obey the things of Scripture. That's why he concludes by saying not only remember them, keep them, but also what? Repent. Repent. Repentance is a swift, decisive change in mindset and behavior. Remember, change your, your thinking about your sin. Remember what is true and keep God's commandments. Turn from and move in a different direction. This is Jesus' five-step program for this church. They wanted to recover. They needed to go back to the word of God. Go back to the teachings of the apostles. Reacquaint them with the doctrines that they had long ago forgotten. And as they are reacquainted with them, they needed to commit themselves to obeying them and actually live them out. And by doing so, they would repent. This church needed to attend to their weaknesses and we often need to attend to our own weaknesses as well. It's point number two for us this morning. It's shore up your spiritual weaknesses. Shore up your spiritual weaknesses. If we're going to do that, what does that imply? That we need to what? Know what our weaknesses are. When the Texans first entered the Alamo in March of 1836, they knew that they were up against a, a, an insurmountable foe. But yet when they took the Alamo, when they entered the Alamo to, to make their last stand, their final defense, one of the first things they did was they went out and they looked at the state of the walls. And they found the, the weakest spot and they put their men immediately to work rebuilding that spot, buffeting that, that spot, strengthening it, building it back up as best they could. They knew they wouldn't have time before the attack came to, to bring it up to its, its, its original state and to make it how they would want it. So not only did they go to work to, to rebuild it, but then they put their best shooters on that spot. They were showing up their weaknesses. Back when Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, what, what was one of the first things that he did? He went out and what? Inspected the, the walls. Because a city without walls is no city at all. And so he went to work in rebuilding the walls. We need to rebuild the walls of our spiritual lives sometimes, men. We need to shore up the weak spots in the walls of our spiritual lives. And so think about what your weaknesses are in your walk with Christ. Maybe it's prayer. 
Maybe it's time in the Word. Maybe it's evangelism, discipleship. Maybe it's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You, you see some of those fruit of the Spirit, of, of the fruit of the Spirit, and you say, you know, I, I need to, to be more joyful. I need to be more patient. I need to show more kindness in my life. I need to show more faithfulness in my life. Know what your weaknesses are. If you don't know the answer to this question, ask a brother who's close to you, or better yet, if you want to really know, ask your wife. We go get a yearly physical every year, right? Hopefully you do. You walk into the doctor's office and you expect them to do more than just look you up and down kind of once from about 10 feet away and go, ah, yep, you're good, see you next year, right? You may not agree with this in the process, but you want, you want your physical. Why? Because you want to know if there are any weaknesses physically that you need to go about correcting. You need to hear him say, you know what, let's drop a few pounds. Maybe McDonald's four times a week, nah, maybe it's not the best dietary plan for you. Let's bring that cholesterol down. You know what, your blood pressure is a little bit high. Maybe we need to put you on some medication to bring that down. See, we need him to, to come in and, and, and assess our physical weaknesses. Guys, we need to, to make sure that not yearly, but daily, we are assessing our spiritual weaknesses. And saying, okay, what do I need to do? What, what do I need to, to change about my spiritual diet, so to speak, to make sure that I'm showing up the defenses of my life spiritually. Once you've identified them, you need to go to work on actually showing them up. Remember the things that you've heard. Keep them is that next part. You need to, to, to keep them. You need to obey them. Prayer. If you're struggling with prayer, if you're not praying with your family enough, praying with your wife enough, praying as, as an individual enough, praying for unbelievers, praying for your, your leaders here in the church, praying for the leaders in this country, if, if you're not doing these things, if, if prayer is an area you want to grow in, what resources are you availing yourself of to grow in those areas? Are you reading books on, on praying? There's one that we carry in our bookstore called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's a great book on prayer. Read books that, that will encourage you, that will help you in that. Find sermons, listen to sermons about what it looks like to, to pray and to pray effectively. Find accountability, somebody that will hold you accountable. Go to them and say, hey, I want to I be praying more this week. Give them a number so that they can hold you accountable to that. Time in the Word, are you doing the DBR? Are you setting reminders on your phone? Not just one, but set 50 so that you're just bugged to death all day long. So that you can't just go, okay, yeah, I'm going to just ignore that one and forget about it. No, set as many as you possibly can so that you can't get away from it. So that you will take that time to, to either listen to the DBR as you're driving to and from work or pick up your Bible, get up earlier and, and read it or read it at, in the evening. Do, do something. Make that time for time in the Word. Evangelism. I just had a conversation with a brother this week that said, man, I want a greater desire for evangelism. I said, great, what are you doing about that? He said, I'm praying that God will give me a greater desire for evangelism. I said, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because that's not how God works, is it? God's not this divine magician with his magic wand waiting for us to pray the right formula of words and all of a sudden he'll wave his magic wand and, and put this new desire in our lives, is it? That's not how it happens. What do you have to do if you want to increase in your affection and desire for evangelism? You have to do what? You have to go and evangelize. 
And so if evangelism is, is an area where you're weak in and, and you're sitting there going, man, I know I need to have a greater desire and passion for evangelism, and you're not actually giving yourself over to opportunities to evangelize, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We've got an evangelism ministry here at the church that goes out. Go with them. Or find a brother in Christ and say, hey, I want to go down to the town center. I want to go to the spectrum. And will you come with me and, and let's go talk to some, some unbelievers tonight. It's only as you begin to do it that you will begin to cultivate a greater desire for it. Discipleship. If you haven't been through partners, go through partners. But I'm about to break some news for you. Discipleship doesn't end after partners ends. It's an ongoing, it's a lifelong process. Having relationships with other men that are, are, are close relationships, that are intimate relationships where you can trust one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, spur one another on in Christ's likeness. That should be a mark of Christianity for you. The fruit of the Spirit. How are you going after increasing joy, increasing faithfulness, increasing, increasing those things? It's not enough for us to identify the weaknesses. We also need to build them up. Why? Well, the, the threat here from Christ is this. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. When Jesus speaks of coming like a thief, he's always looking to his second coming. Not in the rapture, but his return as the conquering king to bring judgment upon his enemies. And so Jesus is confronting this church and he's saying, look, you have this reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So those of you who are actually believers there, strengthen what remains that's about to die. If you don't, the next time you see me is not going to be the rapture. It's going to be when I return in judgment because the majority of this church was full of those who were unsaved. And so he's saying eternity is at stake. So be alert, strengthen what remains, shore up your spiritual weaknesses. But like I said, not all was lost for this church. He says, you do have a few, verse four. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. In Southern California, we don't put a whole lot of thought into what we wear to church on Sunday morning. I'm not slamming anybody. It's just, we have a casual environment, right? I mean, there's not a lot of difference between the week and, and what we wear on Sunday morning. But in the South, in the South, people dress to the nines when they show up at church, right? They, they put on their what? Their Sunday best. That term was coined in the South, not in Southern California. But actually, when I was in the Midwest, in, in Kansas City, it was a similar environment. People would, would dress up there. And there was one lady in particular who, she was a sweet older saint in the church, and she always wore her best. And she would wear this hat every single week. And I went and sat down with her one Sunday morning, and I said, Miss Estella, I said, why, why do you always look so nice on Sunday morning? You always are, are so pretty on Sunday mornings. And she said, well, she said, when I was growing up, my mom always used to tell me when we go to church, we go to see the king. And when you go before the king, you wear your best. In our culture, we, we have a, a different culture, different mindset. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But in this culture, when Jesus was addressing this church, when you went to worship, you better have a clean garment on. In fact, if you showed up to worship and your garment wasn't spotless, if it was found to be dirty or stained, you were disqualified from worship that day. And not only were you disqualified from worship that day, but by daring to come into the, the presence of your God or goddess wearing an un, unclean garment, a stained garment, you were bringing shame upon that deity. And so Jesus says, most of you in this church have soiled your garments. 
But, but there's a few who haven't. There's a few who have not bowed the knee to the world. There's a few who were still in their Sunday best, unstained, pure, and acceptable. And for those, they were promised that they would one day walk with Christ in white. The color of white in the scriptures is is a reference to the righteousness of Jesus. When he's transfigured before the believers, he appears in, in brilliant white before them. Later in Revelation chapter 19, it says that the armies of heaven will follow behind Jesus when he returns, and they will be dressed in fine linen, in brilliant white. And positionally, we are all dressed already in in the white robes of Christ, aren't we? That took place at the cross. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. But the reality of that is is yet to, to be fully realized for us. But there's coming a day that, as Jesus says here, those who keep themselves unstained will be with him and will walk with him in garments of white. And this flows into the commendation, which continues in verse 5 with this promise. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The one who conquers. Who is the one who conquers? It's the Christian, right? And does the Christian conquer on his own merit? No. How do we conquer? By the blood of Christ, right? By faith in Christ. To the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, they will be clothed thus in white garments, as we just mentioned. But he continues and he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There are some that say this is teaching that it's possible for a believer to lose salvation. I don't know how you get that out of this verse. What does it say? It says the opposite, does it not? It says, I will what? Never, never blot his name out of the book of life. Whose name? The one who conquers. How do we conquer? We just said not based on what? Our own merit, but based on what? The blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, you are what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will lose none. Later in John chapter 6, he says that we're in the, the hand of the Father and he says that no one can snatch us from the hand of the Father. No one means no one. Let's not be so proud as to think that no one else in all of history, including all of Satan and his demons, is powerful enough to remove us from the hand of God, but somehow we ourselves are strong enough to remove ourselves from the hand of God. That's a position of arrogance. You are secure in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have repented from your sins and put your faith in Christ, you are in the hand of the Father and no one can snatch you out. You will be the one who conquers. And Jesus says he will never blot you out of the name, your name out of the the book of life. You may say, well, back in Exodus chapter 32, it says that somebody can be blotted out of God's book. Psalm 69, 28, it says that if we sin, we can be blotted out of the book of the living. Yes, the book of the living in the book in Exodus chapter 32 is not the same thing as the book of the life of the Lamb of God. The book of the living was the book of those who were living, physically. The threat in Exodus 32 and the threat in Psalm 69, 28 is the threat of death. Not spiritual death, physical death. 
What we have when we get into Revelation with the book of life, the book of the life that is the, the book of the Lamb of God, this is dealing with our eternal destiny. And Jesus says, I will never blot you out of the book of life. He says, finally, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This should cause us to recall the words of Jesus from Luke 12, 8. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. That's an amazing promise. And it's an amazing promise. It's point number three for us this morning. It's this, live to hear Christ call your name. Confess your name. Live to hear Christ confess your name. Again, we, we live in a world where the temptations to give ground doctrinally or devotionally are rampant, but refuse to give in to this temptation. There's a day coming for you if you are in Christ where you will be robed in white in the righteousness of Christ, fully realizing that the freedom from the very presence of sin, never to sin again or to experience any of the consequences of sin again. You will walk with Christ and you will appear before the Father along with him and he will say, this is PJ. I know him. He's one of my sheep. He won't call you PJ. He'll call you by your actual name. But think about that for a minute. I mean, people get goosebumps when Pastor Mike knows their name on the patio, right? We're talking about the Son of God standing up before the Father and before all of the angels and confessing your name. He's held fast to me. Now I'm willing to hold fast to him. He's mine. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You want to hear that? I want to hear that. Live for that. Refuse to, 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 to sacrifice that for anything that this world could throw your way or offer you. If you are in Christ, yes, you are eternally secure, but take the, the, the warning passages of Hebrews seriously. Make sure that you are in Christ, that you're not just believing in salvation by osmosis, that you're not trusting in a reputation to go back to the beginning of this letter, that you're not trusting in the external, that you actually have repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. If there's something keeping you from that decision, whether it's a fear of a persecution or a love of, of the comfort of this world, let me just say it's not worth trading what you would, you would experience in the presence of God with Jesus saying, he's mine, I know him. That's not worth giving up for what you enjoy right now. Let it go. Live to hear Christ confess your name. Keep yourself unstained from this world. Do not love the world or the things in it. And as it was true of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, consider the reproach of Christ worth greater wealth than the treasures that this world has to offer you. There are reputations that matter in this world, but none of those matter in eternity. The only reputation that matters in eternity is our reputation with God. And so let me just encourage you as we close this morning. Think, ponder, question. Does your reputation match your reality? Let's pray together. 
God, we're thankful for this text. We're thankful that it is a a wake-up call, that it will shake us. I pray that it would do just that, that we would look inwardly, that we would examine our lives, that we we would check ourselves to see, to make sure that, that our reputation does, in fact, match our reality, that we concern ourselves with the reputation that matters, which is where we stand with you. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit and, and by your grace and through other brothers in, in our lives and even through our family members, our spouses and others, that you would use them to, to come alongside us and reveal the weaknesses in our lives where we need to shore up our defenses, strengthen where we need to, to rebuild the walls. Lord, help us to, to remember the, the truth of your word, to keep those things, to repent, Lord, when we need to repent. And God, may we live lives that are unstained from this world. May we live lives that are lives that, that will see us stand once, one day before you and hear Christ confess our name before you. God, what a day that will be. By your grace, Lord, we can get there through faith in Christ. And we know that that faith in Christ launches us into a, a lifelong process where you begin to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. So do that today and the rest of this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.